Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. And beloved, our passage tonight is from Matthew 20. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew 20, and it's also printed in your bulletin as well. Let's hear God's powerful, inerrant word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour he did the same. And about the eleventh hour he he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us? who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat? But he replied to to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge me my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Pray with me. O gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this parable that our Lord taught us. And Father, as we look at your word now, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit that you would help us to grow in our understanding of your grace to us and your love for us that we have in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, Dr. Light's sermon last Sunday evening on the parable of the unforgiving servant really struck a chord with me. Because as Dr. Light preached, this parable is all about forgiving others who have sinned against you, knowing how much more you have been forgiven. 
And it reminded me of an old grudge that I still need to work on. I can remember it as if it were yesterday. And after 50 years, 50 years, it still burns me up. Our school system in the Philadelphia suburbs was known for its progressive teaching methods. So in fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Boucher, tried a new teaching technique. Out with lectures, in with group study. So the class was split up into teams of two, and we were to make a model of a Roman villa in our study of ancient Rome. And my best friend, Willard, and I, well, we were a team, and I thought, this is great. My best friend and I, well, we are going to be a super team. We're going to be a great team together. And so we start to make our villa. However, it was hardly a team effort. While I was crafting beautifully designed Corinthian columns, Willard spent his time chatting up Mrs. Boucher. While I was making a really cool miniature Roman chair and tables, Willard was laughing it up with the teacher. And while I was making an intricate tile roof and an indoor pool, Willard was having a grand time schmoozing Mrs. Boucher. And after all of it was completed, we got our grades. And you want to know what they were? You want to know what they were? <laughs> Willard, Willard got an A. He got an A. And you know, want to know what I got? I got a C. I got a C. And I wanted to yell out, that's not fair. I did all the work. Well, you may have felt the same way at some point in your life. You work just as hard as your colleague who gets the promotion. You get passed by for the scholarship, even though your grades are just as good, if not better. And we can think of any number of examples because life is full of instances where we might just want to yell out, that's not fair. And as we read today's passage, we may have a similar reaction in this story. There is something in this parable that makes us want to say, hey, that's not fair. Well, what's going on in this parable? The setting is a vineyard in September when the grapes are ready and ripe for harvest and there is an urgency on the part of the landowner. He needs to harvest these grapes before the heavy October rains come, which could absolutely destroy the harvest. So what does he do? Well, he needs more laborers. So he rises up early before dawn, and he goes to the marketplace to choose some day laborers, unskilled, temporary workers who are always in need of work. He chooses them to work in his vineyard. 
And according to verse 2, he and the laborers mutually agree that he will pay them a denarius, which was the standard wage for a day's work. And that is an important detail to note. The landowner didn't force them to come to work for him. He chose them and they willingly accepted his offer to harvest his vineyard all day long starting at 6 a.m. for the agreed price. And at first, well, at first, those laborers must have been absolutely overjoyed to be chosen. Why, they could hardly believe their good fortune. We could just picture them singing all the way to the vineyard, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go, hi-ho, hi-ho, why they would be happy to work even under the scorching September sun because they knew, they knew that they could now feed their family that day because they were going to receive a full day's wage having been chosen by the gracious Landover. And it must have been a bumper crop that year because the owner needs even more workers for the harvest. He hires some more at 9 a.m., guaranteeing them that he would give them whatever is right. And then again, he goes out and hires more at noon, and then others at 3 p.m. And then finally, finally, at the remains of the day, he hires even more at 5 p.m., at the very last hour. And when the whistle blew at 6 p.m. and the work stopped, the 5 p.m. workers who had worked less than an hour, well, they received a whole denarius for their one hour of employment. Wow! Once again, the landowner was being incredibly gracious. Now consider this. When it came time to pay the wages, if the first workers, the 6 a.m. workers who had gotten, if they had gotten paid first and had gotten their promised denarius, well, they would have been happy as clams. They would have been eager to get home and say, hey, honey, I'm home. Guess what I got? I got a whole denarius today. But in the parable, The last workers, the 5 p.m. workers, get paid first. The first workers get paid last, which is part of the core of the message that the last are first and the first are last. And when the last get paid first, and they get a whole denarius for just one hour work, what happens? Well, those who work the longest assume that they're going to get more. They're going to get more than just a denarius, more than they had already agreed to. Wow, they must have thought. If these men who came at 5 o'clock got a whole denarius for just one hour, how much more will I get? Maybe I'll get 6, 10, maybe 12 denarii. But when they get paid, imagine their shock and disappointment when they receive their one denarius. 
And so what do they do? They grumble and they complain to the master. We toiled under the hot sun for 12 hours. Look at us. Our sweat has run through our clothes and we are covered in dirt. And look at these guys. These guys who only worked one hour. Why, they hardly broke a sweat and their clothes are just as clean as when they started. And yet we receive the same as them, even though we worked so much longer. While this is unjust, this isn't fair. And if this were to happen today, what would the reaction be? Well, there would be protests People would shout, hey, this is income inequality. We need to organize and fight for equal pay. And granted, in the business world, what the landowner did would be unheard of. There is, this is no way to run a business because eventually the owner would probably become bankrupt. But beloved, Jesus isn't giving a lesson on economics or fair business practices. No, what he's doing here is teaching us a spiritual truth through this parable. This story is about God's character and about God's economy, about God's economy and redemption, the way he treats us which goes against the grain of human expectations and our quid pro quo sense of fairness. This parable illustrates the proverb which brackets the story. And this proverb is found in chapter 19 at the very end at verse 30 and at verse 16 at the end of the parable that the first shall be last and the last will be first. Well, what does that mean? That the first are last, and the last shall be first. Well, when you boil it all down, in essence, each person called to work in the landowner's estate gets the same amount, regardless of how long they are on the estate. And whether they work one hour or 12 hours, what they receive is really beyond all comprehension, more than they could ever dream or imagine as a common day laborer. They get more than they could ever expect. But what they all receive, though, is the same. John MacArthur likens the parable to a race. If there is a race and the first person is last and the last person is first, it means that both win having crossed the finish line at the same time. They equally share in the prize. And the prize in this parable is eternal life because the parable is all, all about God's magnificent grace. In the parable, the landowner represents God who calls some to be part of his kingdom. He initiates who is brought into his kingdom by his gracious summons to come and work in his kingdom. And this is made especially clear in relationship to the workers who were chosen last, who receive a day's wages for just one hour of work. For a day laborer to not work, well, what did it mean? It meant no food for the day. So these laborers, they had waited all day long for work, 
so that they could eat. And at 5 p.m., they were at the point of absolutely no hope. They were desperate for someone to come and lift them out of their situation to say, here, come with me and you will find work so that you can eat and so that you can live. So in other words, they were really needy. They were desperate and they were poor and they were ready to give up everything, all hope until the landowner shows up at the very last hour and he calls them to his grand estate and he pays those poor needy people richly, generously, graciously. They experience the gracious hand of the landowner who comes and saves them at the very last hour. And what do they receive at the last hour? A denarius, which represents eternal life. The same glorious eternal destiny that the others received who went and worked at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. and 12 noon and at 3 p.m. And beloved, this highlights a spiritual truth that some are called into God's kingdom when they are young and others when they are old. Some receive the gospel when they are four, and others receive the gospel when they are 84. But all, all receive the same magnificent, overflowing, abundant grace of God who calls us out of our desperate state of sin and doom, and he brings us into his kingdom where we serve our Lord and some serve longer and some for less. But we all, all receive the same gift of his grace, eternal life. So the problem here isn't the graciousness of the landowner, that he is somehow being unfair. The problem is the attitude of those who are called at six in the morning and look down on those who come to work at just the final hour. They represent those who feel more deserving of God's favor because they worked longer in his kingdom than others and therefore they think that they should receive more compensation. And this is certainly the context of the passage. We see in the previous verses that the disciples had this same sort of attitude. In chapter 19, what does Peter say? Well, Peter says in verse 27, Jesus, we gave up everything to follow you. And what do we get in return? And what was Jesus' response? Truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then in the next verse, notice what he says in verse 29. And everyone, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit what? Eternal life. 
So not just the first disciples, but all of his followers will receive much more back for whatever they left behind to follow Christ. And in addition, all receive eternal life. And then he warns his disciples by saying, but many who are first will be last and the last first. See, you see, Jesus gently rebukes his disciples with this parable and us by extension as well. Jesus uses this parable to address the disciples' heart attitude expressed by Peter's question in chapter 19 when he says, Jesus, what do we get for serving you? Now, do you hear what's behind that question? What kind of attitude is that? Well, it's a pay-for-play attitude. It's a I-do-for-you so you do for me attitude. An attitude that says, you owe me, Lord, for my faithful service, so I better be compensated fairly and proportionately. So this parable addresses that you owe me attitude. By teaching this parable, Jesus is basically saying, Peter, Peter, I hear in your question this strain of discordant music. Peter, you're singing a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. For what I hear in that question is a works righteousness view of how you operate with God, in which somehow the Lord God owes you that he's indebted to you for all that you've done to serve him. As if by your good works, you could earn your entrance into heaven. And yet, beloved, is that how it really is? Can we earn our way to heaven by our good deeds? Does God owe us anything? No, He is not in debt to us. Rather, we are in debt to him. Our sin is the infinite debt that we owe to an infinite God for not loving him with all of our heart and mind and soul and spirit and not loving our neighbor like ourselves. And yet some may object. What? You can't get to heaven by being a good person? Well, That isn't fair. Well, look at all the good things that I've done. I'm a very religious person. I help the poor. I do volunteer work at the hospital. I donate to the goodwill. I donate my blood three times a year. I shovel my elderly neighbor's sidewalk in the winter. So you mean to say that that counts for nothing? on the eternal scales of God's justice, where I'm trying to outweigh the bad things I've done with the good things I've done so that I can just tip the scales enough in my favor that I can enter into those pearly gates. You mean to say that all those good things count for nothing? Well, what does Scripture say? 
that even our good deeds are but what? Filthy rags. They're worthless. They're useless in trying to earn our way to eternal life because they are done with mixed motives in which we want to parade our own sense of self-righteousness and to say, hey, ain't I some kind of special? So the reality is that what we think are pluses with scoring points towards a heavenly win in God's economy, well, in God's economy, they're really minuses. Our good deeds apart from faith in Christ are worthless, and they only increase our debt that we owe against a holy, just God. And should we stand on judgment day with just our good deeds, thinking somehow that God owes us a pass through those heavenly gates, well, we would be sorely mistaken, wouldn't we? Should we say, Lord God, I demand from you, I demand from you my just desserts for all that I've done in my life. Well, we would find that those just desserts don't taste very sweet, do they? And we, in fact, we would find that those just desserts taste like burning ash, and they would have the smell of smoldering sulfur. And there would be the stench of death about them. Oh, no. No, we wouldn't want to demand our just desserts from a holy and just God. For we would be under his condemnation, and justly so, for every thought, word, and deed that was an affront to his holy character. So what about that you-owe-me-God attitude that Peter expresses? How does that work-for-wages attitude really work out? Not really at all. For the wages of sin is death, as Paul writes in Romans 6.23. We really don't want to get what we deserve from a holy God, do we? For what we earn is eternal damnation. But the disciples, they, they didn't get the message, did they? For after Jesus tells this parable, what do they do? In verses 20 through 24, they start jockeying for position and prominence in God's kingdom. Who will get to sit at the Lord's right hand, the position of honor? And they think that they deserve more because they served Jesus first. They think that God owes them something for their sacrifice. And what is Jesus saying here to the disciples? Your perspective, your perspective disciples, is all wrong. You think that you can earn God's favor by your service to him, but in reality, it is all, all his grace. Eternal life is not something you earn, but a gift you receive, just like those workers who were called out from all out from all the other needy people, and they received more than they ever deserved and a greater blessing than they could ever fathom. 
And beloved, notice what the landowner says in verse 15 in response to his critics who criticize him for being unjust. He says, what I have to give is mine and I give it out as I see fit. And what this verse is, is but a reminder to us that it is by God's sovereign choice that he calls some to salvation. This parable is an illustration of what the Lord himself said to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 19, that I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And then Paul goes on to quote this verse in Romans 9, 15, where he teaches about God's sovereign election and choosing to save some from hell that we all equally deserve. Beloved, he has called us out of the multitude and we were desperate and destined for destruction and we enter into his glorious kingdom. And so what is to be our response? That we are to be thankful for the gift of eternal life that we have received and we are to avoid an attitude that somehow that we've been cheated when God blesses others who have not served him as long or as faithfully as we have. Oh, how easy it is for us to be like those 6 a.m. workers who were once joyful to be on the estate, but then who became bitter and envious when they perceived that the landowner had blessed others more who had served less. Notice how the landowner calls them out on their attitude. What does he say in verse 15? Is your eye evil because I am good? In other words, he, say, he says, I am free in my generosity and your eye is evil, green with envy. For this parable not only illustrates the Lord's economy of grace, but this parable also illustrates our human nature, our fallen human nature that's prone to envy and a sense of entitlement. So let's talk about envy. Because envy is really the heart attitude of the 6 a.m. workers, isn't it? Just think about it. Those 6 a.m. workers, they could have said, wow, wow, isn't it great that the landowner was so kind to those other men who came at the last hour? Well, now those men can feed their families today because of the landowner's generosity and grace but no, 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 no. They grumbled and they complained against the landowner for being what? For being gracious. They saw his graciousness toward the others as an injustice towards them. But was the landowner unjust to them? Absolutely not. He paid them what he said he would. And what they were happy to receive at first until they saw that others who seemed to be given more than they did. But in truth, they all got the same. But they couldn't see straight. 
because they had on green colored lenses. Their eyes were clouded with envy. And in this way, they were like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son who became furious and wouldn't join the family celebration when his wayward brother returned home repentant and restored. And why was the older brother mad? He was mad because he felt shortchanged because what? He felt entitled that he deserved more because of all of his years of his service. And his gracious father goes to him and he says, son, my son, why are you so upset? Don't you realize that all that I have is yours? It's always been that way. And you are always, always with me. But we need to rejoice because your brother was good as dead, but now he is alive and he was lost, but now he has been found. Oh, envious eyes are eyes focused on others and in what they have and what we seemingly lack. As Pastor Chris preached today, wasn't envy the thing that caused Satan to rebel. So let's go down to the root of envy. What does envy really say? Well, envy tells lies about God. It says something about God which isn't true about his character and our relationship with him. For when our green eyes of envy are beaming, what are we saying? We are saying, God, you are stingy. You really aren't a good heavenly father. You don't care about me the way that you care about so-and-so who has something that I lack. Envy says, God, you are not fair because they have something I don't. And I deserve what they have. Beloved, as you know, Paul instructs us in Romans 12:15 to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And I think at times it's much easier to do the latter than to do the former. We can readily slip on the shoes of those suffering and we can sense their pain and loss because we have our own suffering in this fallen world. And so we know what it feels like. But rejoicing with those who rejoice, that can be problematic. How does a woman rejoice with her sister in Christ when she hears that she's pregnant while her own womb is barren? How do you rejoice with your fellow believer when he gets a great promotion while you're stuck in a dead-end job? How do you rejoice with your fellow Christian parents when you see their children grow in faith and witness to the Lord and you have a prodigal son or daughter? How do you rejoice with a Christian couple when they celebrate their 40th anniversary. And for you, there's an empty seat at the table. 
How do you rejoice at others' blessings and not be envious? Well, the verse that helps us understand how to battle envy is Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money. And what? Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We have in that verse this instruction with a promise. Be content. And being content is the opposite of being envious. And the promise which grounds the instruction is that Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. And if we have Christ, beloved, if we have Christ, the king of creation who has pledged himself to us and we are under his constant care, then are we not more blessed abundantly than we can ever dream or imagine? Paul lists the manifold blessings we have in Christ in Ephesians 1, that we are blessed in Christ With what? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That we have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. That we should be what? Holy and blameless before him. Oh, that we are his adopted children according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, in him. We have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of all of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has what? He's lavished them upon us. He's lavished them upon us. And he's given us unshakable, eternal inheritance. And if God blesses us with other good things in this life, well, then they are just icing on the cake. Are they not? Amen? And when we have a humble heart, a humble heart that is simply gobsmacked, grateful for all that we have received in Christ, well, what do we find? We find contentment in Him. And such a Christ-centered focus focuses, filters into all aspects of our life. For if I know that the Lord is good and gracious towards me eternally, and the Lord doesn't change, then I know that he is good and gracious towards me temporally. He gives me what is right for me. His provision is perfect For me, for me, in my story that he has written before the foundation of the world, in my story that he has written for me in his personal dealings with me and for what he wants to accomplish through me and in me. And what he gives to some other brother and sister is right for them. Because he's accomplishing his divinely designed purposes in their lives. And so that's what makes it possible for us to rejoice with those who rejoice. And not feel envious that we have not been blessed the same way that they have. 
The way out of envy is to look up and not look around. For when we see how much we have been abundantly blessed in Christ, with our cup overflowing, then we can be content knowing that he has us firmly in his grip. So, brothers and sisters, we've come full circle. We are those laborers who have been given a coin of great worth, eternal life with Christ. So how can we ever say, when we look at others, Lord, you are not fair. And beloved, we can be thankful. We can be thankful that though the Lord is just, he isn't fair. For if he were fair, then we would all know his justice. But instead, instead his justice was poured out upon his very own precious son, Jesus Christ, so that those who are called by him would know instead not his justice, but his mercy. For notice that after Jesus spoke this parable, he told his disciples what would happen to him once he reached Jerusalem. That in Jerusalem, he would be crucified on the cross, and yet on the third day, he would rise again from the dead. And on that cross, God's sinless son experienced what we, what he did not deserve, the horrific wrath of God for all of our sins, so that we could experience what we do not deserve, eternal life with him. For on that cross, Jesus paid the infinite debt that we owed for our infinite offenses so that we could receive the gift of his grace through faith in Christ. You see, when Jesus told that, parable, that proverb, the last will be first and the first will be last, oh, he wasn't speaking empty platitudes. Now he walked the talk. For he experienced what he was saying. As Philippians 2 says, that he, Christ, who was first, the king of all creation, he made himself last, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? So that we, who were last, who were dead in our sins, should be made like him, who is first reigning over all creation. Oh, this parable is about the glorious hand of God, who calls us just like those poor laborers out of our desperate strait. And he says, you Come at this hour to serve me in my kingdom and I will give you eternal life. And for some, it's at 6 a.m. early in life. And for others, it's at their very last hour. And when he calls us at whatever hour and we respond to it by putting our faith in Christ, we receive what we didn't deserve. We merited God's wrath but we receive his inexpressible joy through Christ who saves us.
So, brothers and sisters, let's reflect on this truth every day so that it becomes a part of the fabric of who we are. That the Lord has wondrously poured out his abundant grace upon us in such a way that we who were last have become first in him. Because he who was first became last, made himself last for us. Let's pray. O oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we were like those poor laborers and you called us out to be part of your kingdom by your grace alone, through Christ alone, who died on the cross to save us from all of our sins. And Lord, we are not just mere laborers, but you have also made us sons and daughters. And we don't just serve you in a field for a few hours, but instead you welcome us into your eternal home as part of your family. So what can we do in response to such an amazing grace but to give you our heart's devotion and our very lives, to serve you faithfully wherever you have placed us, to show forth the grace that you have shown to us through Christ in our families, in our schools, in our workplaces, wherever you have placed us. Father God, Lord, we give you praise and thanks for the amazing grace that we have in Christ, who was made last so that we would be first like him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.